Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Energy City Plugged In Podcast, where we talk about the latest in news, sports, and entertainment in the Estevan area. The Energy City Plugged In Podcast is sponsored by the Estevan Mercury, Estevan's number one source for news since 1903. You are listening to us via the Estevan Mercury's website, www.estevanmercury.ca, the Press Play Network at pressplaynetwork.ca, or on SoundCloud or iTunes. My name is David Wilberg, and I'm a reporter for the Estevan Mercury. Joining me this week for our week monthly energy chat is Brian Zinchuk, the editor of Pipeline News, Saskatchewan's monthly petroleum newspaper. Brian, as always, it's great to have you here. Hi, Dave. And of course, it's been a very, very eventful week in the energy sector with pipeline announcements and an OPEC announcement that we will get to later. But I guess because it's pipeline news, it's best that we talk about pipelines first. And there were some big announcements for, for pipelines this week. Brian, what can you tell us about them? Well, this is very much the definition of pipeline news because there's a lot of news in building new pipelines. So uh, right now, there are five pipeline projects in play in Canada. We have uh, and three of them were decided on on Tuesday by the prime minister and his cabinet. So starting from the west and going to the east, we're talking about the Northern Gateway Pipeline, which will run from uh, Edmonton to Kitimat and would have had tankers going about 200 kilometers down the very narrow, rocky Douglas Channel between mountains uh, out to the Pacific Coast. And that was a uh, heavy oil pipeline with a daily limit pipeline twinned to take daily limit back the other direction. Uh, the Northern Gateway Pipeline was killed. It is dead and we knew that was going to happen because Prime Minister Trudeau, in his mandate letter to the transport minister a year ago, said, thou shalt ban all tankers on the northern BC coast. So that would have been a pipeline to nowhere. So it's dead, and everyone knew that was going to happen. The second one is the Kinder Morgan Trans Mountain Pipeline, uh, also called Trans Mountain Expansion, or TMX. That one would add a second pipeline along the same right-of-way as the existing pipeline, which has been there for approximately 60 years. And it runs from Edmonton area all the way to Burnaby, B.C. And uh, this would dramatically increase the capacity of that, basically adding two times the existing or tripling the total volume of oil that can go that direction. So that's pushing almost 900,000 barrels a day. The third pipeline, is, and that one has been approved. Uh, a few weeks ago, the Prime Minister made the uh, point of coming to Vancouver and saying we're spending $1.5 billion on improving all sorts of marine safety items, which was one of the conditions that BC Premier Christy Clark had said we have to have a world-class spill response. So this is part of that. So that was a clear indication this was going to get a go-ahead. The third one is the Line 3 expansion. Now, this is the one that really has the impact on Saskatchewan. Enbridge has several lines in its main line. There's uh, line 1, 2, 3, 4, 67. Uh, I think there may be one more. And line 3, which was built around 1971, has been problematic. It didn't have the same type of uh, tar coating that the first two lines had, which worked exceptionally well as a coating, not very good for the workers who were applying it. Uh, line 3 used a... Uh, what they called a rope and dope. It was a tape type of uh, coating, and it didn't work worth a darn. And a few years ago, Enbridge was going to replace big chunks of this line, 
and then uh, just continue using the rest as is. And that would have been about a $1.5 billion project. And then they realized well, that's like putting you know, brakes in a 67 Buick. Yeah, you, you may have new brakes, but you still have an old car. Mm-hmm. So instead, they decided to replace the entire pipeline. The whole thing, they're going to leave the old one in the ground and put a new one beside it, basically parallel to it, and call it the new Line 3. That one was approved. And that has hardly seen any press anywhere, but has the biggest impact on Saskatchewan. I'll come back to that in a second. Uh, the third or fourth pipeline in play is the uh, Keystone XL, which a year ago at this week, actually, was dead, according to President Obama. Well, there's been a lot of indications, and I heard some yesterday, that uh, the Trump, uh, Donald Trump transition team is looking to move on Keystone XL like immediately. Uh, I understand, uh, you know, through the grapevine, his transition team made a call uh, regarding getting this pipeline going within days of him actually winning the election. So we could see an announcement as soon as late January, right after the inauguration, saying Keystone XL is approved. And if that's the case, then that will go from Hardesty down through southwest Saskatchewan, <coughs> excuse me, and it would uh, run to Steel, Steel City, Nebraska, which then flows into Cushing. Uh, and that's the oil hub for all of North America. And then the fifth one, which was not in play right now, but will be eventually, is the Energy East pipeline, which goes from Hardesty all the way to St. John, New Brunswick. So out of these five major pipelines that are in play, we had decisions on three of them, and the fourth one will be very soon. And that is huge. Uh, what this means is that we have had, for the better part of almost a decade, a stagnation on decisions on new pipelines. I first wrote down Keystone uh, Pipeline on my whiteboard when I first started doing this job nearly nine years ago. So uh, we had had several editions planned where we were going to do a whole edition on Pipeline News about building Keystone XL. That got canceled and canceled Mm -hmm. and canceled and still hasn't happened. So this is a big, big deal. And what does this mean overall for the industry? It means hope. And we'll get more of this on the OPEC part. But uh, we've had two years of just nothing but uh, abysmal returns, people losing jobs, businesses shutting down. And this is the first indication that we've had from the federal government that maybe they might have our back. Now, I mean, the conservative government always claimed to be, you know, very pro-oil and all that sort of thing. But amazingly enough, Northern Gateway never actually did get built, even though approved by Harper. Mm-hmm. If he had really pushed it, it could have happened. Uh, these other pipelines, you know, the approval process has got strung out so long that we ended up with a liberal government, and the industry's going, oh, my God, we have a liberal government. What are we going to do about this? They're probably never going to approve anything. So the fact that we did get two out of three pipelines approved is actually remarkable. I mean, i still picking my job off the floor that a prime minister named Trudeau approved two pipelines. Mm-hmm. I so, think that's a, your, based the gist of your column in this week's edition of Pipeline. Absolutely. And, you know, all things considered, I think the Northern Gateway project was flawed. I mean, I'm a prairie boy. I've never really spent much time at the coast, but I can look at a map pretty well. And Prince Rupert, the port there is one of the largest deep water ports in the world. And a ship would load at Prince Rupert, make a left turn and a right turn, and they're in open ocean. That's it. Done. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kitimat, they would be, had to be attached uh, with a tow rope, or sorry, a tow rope, but uh, with a rope or a cable to a tugboat 
hanging on to the rear end of it for 200 kilometers going down rocky shores, down a narrow channel, uh, windswept channel, and hopefully don't run into anything. At the narrowest points, that channel is only about four times wider than the length of one of these super tankers. That's, I mean, yeah, sure, you probably do that all the time, but what happens if you have really bad weather or something like that? You know, you're, you're dealing with that every single ship that transits through there. So from my perspective as a guy who grew up in Yorkton, Saskatchewan, it was a dumb place to put the terminus of a pipeline. They should have put it at Prince Rupert, and maybe a lot of his stuff wouldn't have been an issue. Mm-hmm. But the uh, prime minister didn't like the idea of an oil pipeline. I'll get to, uh, that in a second. Going through the Great Bear Rainforest. Now he hasn't said anything about natural gas pipelines because all this LNG stuff has to go through the exact same rainforest. But I guess there's a distinction here of oil. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kinder Morgan, uh, of course, has been a very controversial topic. You said before, it's there's been a pipeline there already for decades. So why is there an outcry uh, in regards to the the Trans Mountain uh, extension, or the Trans Mountain pipeline? Uh, is it just a matter of idealism, or is there something more at play? I would say absolutely that. They call it the left coast for a reason. And some people just literally have no connection with reality. And the reason why Vancouver exists, period, is because it is our West Coast port. Yeah, we have Prince Rupert, but that doesn't really count. Vancouver is one of the largest ports in North America. It is the outlet for almost every good produced west of Winnipeg. Uh, Everything from coal to potash to oil to grain that is why Vancouver's there. It's not there for producing BC bud. It's not there for, uh, you know, living in Lotus land. It's there so that the rest of Canada can communicate through shipping to the rest of the world. And a lot of people in Vancouver don't realize that. They just think, wow, it's a pretty place to live. And we got great weather. Well, it rains a lot. So, uh, Which it is a pretty place to live and I'm sure it is, you know, it's, and some people think, oh, you know, we, we can't handle the, this uh, this traffic. Well, look at the port. I mean, the, there are ships coming in and out of there all the time. This is why it exists. This is mm-hmm. why we have ports. It's why, the, it's why Halifax exists. It's why Long Beach exists, you know. Uh, same thing for uh, San Francisco. It's because ports are crucial for global commerce. And without Vancouver operating in its function as a port, we, the rest of Canada's basically hooped. So when it comes to North, uh, Kinder Morgan, that pipeline's been quietly pumping away quarter million barrels a day, give or take, for longer than I've been around, for 20 years longer than I've been around. No big deal. No mm-hmm. one noticed it. In fact, I was on CJME Radio here the other day, and uh, the producer uh, phoned me in the morning, uh, asked me to go on there, and I said, do you know where the Line 3 runs through China? And he said, no. I said, well, it's near the, uh, the northwest corner of town there, which is where he lives. And it's right south of the Home Depot. He says, oh, I walk my dog along that all the time. I said, exactly. That's my point. Mm-hmm. You know, the pipelines transport oil safely, quietly, without anyone noticing all the time. Mm-hmm. And Vancouver needs to get its head out of a certain place and just deal with this. As for line three, why is, you know, you said it earlier, this is the big project for Saskatchewan. Obviously, it's going to run underneath, it runs underneath Saskatchewan. So 
why is this one so big for the province? He is part of a network of pipelines. These other projects are generally one pipe in the ground, so anything that's going to go through it has to go through that one pipe. Uh, whereas Line 3 is part of a network of multiple pipes in the same corridor. So what that means is that it doesn't really matter if oil flows through oil. Line 1, Line 2, Line 3, Line 4. As long as you add capacity to the system, it can go on any of those pipes, but the net benefit is you have more capacity. Now, everyone talks about, okay, these pipelines are for oil sands, oil primarily, but pretty much every drop of Saskatchewan oil flows through the Enbridge mainline system. Anything that doesn't flow on rail goes through Enbridge. So anything from the Lloydminster region generally gets gathered up to the Lloydminster uh, upgrader, and then from there goes from the Lloydminster mainline into Hardesty, from Hardesty into the Enbridge mainline. Could go into the Keystone pipeline system, but right now mostly it's for the Enbridge. Southwest Saskatchewan comes up into Regina. Southeast Saskatchewan, everything goes into the Westburg system, which has just been recently purchased by Tundra Energy Marketing Limited. That flows into Cromer, uh, Manitoba, and then from there goes a long way. So when you're adding about a half million barrels a day of capacity to the network, not line three, but to the network, that means there is more room for Saskatchewan oil. Mm-hmm. Now, that half million barrels a day capacity uh, comes from two things. One is that because they'll be able to run it at full pressure instead of half pressure, they have more capacity. Number two, that pipe was built as a 34-inch pipe, which is an oddball pipe. They couldn't. Uh, it was kind of a one-off, and it's been a maintenance headache because anything you did with it, you had to get custom-built valves, compressors, whatever. So... The new pipe is slightly bigger at 36-inch. It's a standard-sized pipe. It also means it has more capacity. And if they add additional pumping capacity, they can actually bring it up to 915,000 barrels a day. So that's where you get your extra half million barrels a day. That half million barrels has two significance. One, it's very close to the capacity of the Northern Gateway that was killed. Number two, it is very close to what Saskatchewan produces on a daily basis. So, yes it'll be mostly oil sands oil that comes in. But let's say we see $90 oil again, and Saskatchewan's oil production goes from 500,000 barrels a day to 600,000 barrels a day, or 700,000 barrels a day. That pipeline means we have the capacity to actually uh, ship our oil and have it somewhere to go, as opposed to putting it on rail. Mm -hmm. So it gives us in Saskatchewan and all of Saskatchewan the ability to grow our industry as much as we want, pretty much. We could even almost double it and not fill that capacity. Uh, yes, we'd be displacing oil sands oil, but I frankly don't care about that. <laughs> so, uh, and obviously there's construction jobs during the, the during the construction process. There's going to be jobs. There's going to be economic value uh, in that regard. Oh, yeah. So, for instance, the last time, or Enbridge has built two lines in this network in the past 20 years. Uh, one was uh, Alberta Clipper in 2008-2009, which I covered extensively. And back in 97, actually one of my own personal first pipeline jobs, I worked as an oiler on one of those spreads. Uh, in pipeline business, they call a crew a spread. So a mainline spread is about 650 people. Uh, in 97, I was making no less than $1,600 a week, including my uh, non-taxable living allowance as the lowest paid guy on the job. So now you multiply that by 650 people times a year and a half. 
uh, times two spreads. That's a lot of money. If you look at this entire project for Enbridge, they're saying it's the biggest project ever. Well, that's based on the inflated dollar value of $7.5 billion. It's obviously not bigger than when they first built the system in the first place because they're not building new terminals and all that sort of thing. But what it does mean, when you look at the total kilometers, probably about a third to a half is in Saskatchewan. So that means out of $7.5 billion, a third to a half is being spent in Saskatchewan. Also, almost all the pipe that gets goes into Western Canadian pipelines is made out of Everaz. Everaz in Regina, which has had lots of layoffs because no one was buying pipe because no one was building pipelines. So this means hundreds of jobs coming back to Everaz. It means, now I believe Line 3 pipe is already built and on the ground because I drove past Outlook and I saw a pipeline yard right along the Enbridge right away that was 36 inches. So I think pretty much all of Line 3 is already built. But Everaz could end up producing pipe for uh, any of the other projects as well. So it's good news for Saskatchewan, not just on the local hotels and restaurants uh, supporting the, the crews, not just the campgrounds and the town seeing all this activity, but for Everaz and for the oil producers all over, it is a huge, huge benefit to Saskatchewan. Uh, we've talked at length about Keystone Excel, and so I think we'll, we'll, you know, for those who have heard us in the past, so I think we'll take a, and we'll pass over that one. But uh, quickly on Energy East, do you expect it's going to get built? I think it may get built, but I do not expect that it will get approval from this Trudeau government in this mandate. I think that he's going to say, look, we've already approved these two. Let those get filled. Uh, and plus when Keystone XL get, goes ahead, that's three pipelines. Uh, a whole bunch of oil sands projects have been postponed or delayed or killed because of the drop of oil prices. So I think instead of taking the political heat of building the Energy East pipeline, he's going to say, let's fill those other pipelines first before let's look at Energy East. I think it's one thing to approve pipelines in the West for a Trudeau government. It's quite another thing to have uh, North Dakota access pi pipeline protest style or style of protests in Quebec City and in Montreal. That could be very unpalatable to the liberal base in Eastern Canada. So my guess is that uh, Energy East gets punted one year or one decade down the road. All right. Well, thank you very much for that, Brian. Coming up next, Brian and I will be talking about the uh, decision by uh, OPEC to reduce their oil uh, production. Welcome back. Hi. Brian is back, and uh, we're going to talk about the uh, announcement earlier, the other good news this week, which was the uh, oil-producing and exporting countries uh, has announced that they will be uh, cutting back their uh, output by about 1.5 billion uh, barrels a day, correct? I thought I saw 1.2 million. 1.2, sorry, 1.2, and I think the final figure is going to be 32.5 uh, million barrels a day is what they're now going to be producing uh, which is still a lot, and 1.2 million is obviously just a fraction of the amount, but still it's good news and it's been well-received locally. What is going to be the local impact? Well, this is the one that will have immediate impact in Saskatchewan. Well, the pipeline thing is a big deal, and construction will start uh, later in 2017. This will have an impact literally next week. We could see increased drilling pickup uh, before Christmas, or especially after Christmas. We could see activity levels pick up. 
the uh, OPEC decision, they meet about this about every two years. And two years ago, on November 27th, when they decided we're going to just open up the taps and let her flow, well, that uh, really, really hurt Canada. It really hurt Absolutely. Saskatchewan. I mean, for the last year, almost every service company I've talked to has laid off over half their staff. Uh, you know, some have gone out of business. More likely will go out of business. So this is huge. Does it mean $100 oil? Probably not. If it means $60 oil, that means the difference between shutting down your business in a spring breakup and staying alive to next year. So uh, it's, it's just fundamentally going to make a big difference for the market. Everyone then starts making more money. When we're looking at the impact for Saskatchewan here, in particular, for instance, I uh, spoke to a, a local driller. And just to give you perspective of where we're at, there's about a half dozen uh, small independent drilling companies in southeast Saskatchewan. They have three or four rigs. And of those, some of them haven't drilled a well since spring breakup or since the summer. Uh, a couple of days ago, almost all of them were entirely parked. The whole fleet was parked. You know, or and ones that were working only had one or two rigs working. Then that's not keeping the lights open. Never mind, uh, you know, paying, getting ahead, or making any sort of money. So, increasing the activity level for that will make a big difference. And the reason they're hurting is because the oil companies have said, "You have to cut your rates." And then they said, "You have to cut your rates." And three or four times they've said, "You have to cut your rates," mm -hmm. to the point where mm -hmm. they can't cut the rates anymore. They can't stay in business yep. and drill wells for these day rates. And the reason the oil companies have been doing that is because OPEC uh, basically cut the price of oil with high oil production. Mm -hmm. Now you mentioned 1.2 million barrels a day. The difference between $36 oil and $100 oil is 2 million barrels a day production in a sustained level. That's because the whole world produces around 91, 92 million barrels a day. So a 2% difference, especially over time, makes a huge difference. Now, in, back in the 80s, things swung 5 or 6 million barrels. But now, it's such a tight margin that by re making that reduction, instead of inventories building, instead of storage places like Cushing and Hardesty and underground storage places along the Gulf Coast keep filling with more oil, now that those... Uh, storage hubs will start reducing their supply or reduce the glut, and eventually the price of oil will climb up. And we saw a 10% increase in one day. Absolutely. I think it was a $4 barrel increase or somewhere in that about, range. About four and a half. So, you know, what whatever it is, it this means good things. It means that if you are a, a trucking company and you have to renegotiate your operating line of credit if you're a banker next week, you know, that banker is going to look at you a little bit more favorably than they did last week, mm -hmm. you know, and that may mean that you may not have to lay three people off before Christmas, or maybe you can bring another person back on. You know, that is the fundamental difference of what this means for us. Mm -hmm. So uh, I was going to write a column here for some papers that I do uh, this week, and that was this was on Monday. I scribbled down on my notepad, and it was going to be called, I'm Tired. I'm tired of fighting with, uh, people on Facebook about pipelines and about all this environmental stuff. I'm tired of talking to people who are just barely making a go of it. Uh, I'm tired of dealing with stories where we used to be all positive stories. In the last two years have all been, you know, trying doom to... Doom and gloom. Doom and gloom. And 
this week, this Tuesday and Wednesday change that. It means that there actually is some real hope. The uh, price of oil coming up, the pipeline decision, that is a big deal. And it's hard to state how important that is. Do you think we're going to see $60 a barrel oil in the near future, relatively near future, or is that still going to be a couple of years away? Well, the Russians plan on having a, a small cut as well. I think I saw maybe 300,000 barrels a day and it may mm-hmm. go up a little bit more than that. So that gets closer to that 2 million barrels that I was talking about. It's going to take time. And anyone who's made that prediction over the last two years, oh, we're going to see $65 oil by the end of 2015. I, I heard that in the early 2015. And I heard it in early 2016. So I don't want to make that prediction because I don't know. And... I think that the general trend being up helps everyone. But let me get this clear. $60 just helps pay the bills. It does not get things rocking again. Mm-hmm. We're going to need to see 75 85 There's a lot of people who have cashed out a lot of equity just to stay alive. They need to build that equity. They need to build some money in their pocket before they can start spending. That's everyone from the oil companies to the service companies to to the individuals who may have not worked hardly for the last year. So it's going to take a while, but uh, this may be the end of the doom and gloom. A light at the end of the tunnel and it's no longer a train. Yes, very much. Uh, on a sadder note, uh, the Southeast Saskatchewan oil industry recently lost uh, one of its real innovators and a, a real titan of the sector in uh, Mel Grimes. Uh, what did uh, Mr. Grimes mean to the oil and gas industry in uh, the southeast and, and abroad? Mel Grimes was the owner of uh, Grimes Sales and Service based at Allantman. Uh, that used to be a farm equipment dealer for since the 40s. And he got out of that in the late 80s, and he started buying and selling used pump jacks. And around 2000, he got into business with a man by the name of Paul Chung, a uh, geologist from Calgary, had a small oil company. And Paul had wanted to uh, buy a drilling rig, and he couldn't get one here, so he went to China to to get one. And he didn't end up buying a a drilling rig that day. He ended up meeting, uh, getting a company to invest in him, and they showed him, this is the China China National Petroleum Company, they showed him this pump jack. And this pump jack uh, had a curved walking beam and so that's that thing that goes back and forth, looks like mm-hmm. a seesaw. Mm-hmm. Instead of being straight like every other pump jack you've ever seen, it was curved. And uh, he came back to Saskatchewan and said, I need someone to work with. And a guy by the name of Merwin Shawnsby says, you need to talk to Mel Grimes. And Grimes had already been supplying pump jacks to Paul Chung's business. And the two got to business together 50-50. And the first year they tested six. The next year they brought in, I think, 20 and then 40 or 80, and then 200, then 400. And by 2012, they brought in something like 1,400 pump jacks that year. The, the HG pump jack, which was not Mel's design, and it was not Paul's design, it was a Chinese design, but they acted as distributors, literally changed the entire landscape of Saskatchewan oil patch. Uh, in some areas, it's 90% saturation. So if you want an iconic image of what the Saskatchewan oil patch is, it is the HG pump jack. 
Uh, I was working in uh, November of 2014, taking some pictures at Rocky Mountain House. And I came across a uh, pad that had 20 of these pump jacks. They're in North Dakota. They're now in Utah. So the big thing about uh, this pump jack wasn't just that it was a good pump jack. Uh, as Paul said, it was Mel Grimes who put the service behind it, who was the person behind it that made this thing go. I mean, he basically did all the sales himself individually. Mm-hmm. That company that was supplying the entire industry at peak had 25 people. You usually had about 20 people. It's a very small, tight-knit organization. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mel was also a very, very giving person. He made lots of very generous, anonymous donations that most people didn't know about because he didn't want them to know. Uh, so we have a very extensive uh, obituary that will be published both on pipelinenews.ca uh, next week as well as in our, our print edition coming out next week that will uh, go through much of this. It's a four-page uh, worth story here. Uh, Mel literally transformed the industry here, and it wasn't just because of his product. It was because of the man and uh, his commitment to his customers, his commitment to the service, his commitment to the community. And uh, I didn't know him very well, but uh, it's it's going to be a, a very uh, large hole that he leaves in our community. Thank you very much, Brian. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll catch you next time.